there is no question that regardless of one's sort of linguistic or cultural preferences or allegiances, most deaf and hard of hearing people have developed an expert conception of sound because the hearing world has so often failed to accommodate their differences. And this, this expert conception of sound is multisensory, beyond hearing. One thing that I think musicologists tend to struggle with, and I include myself in this, is making sure that we're not trying to force everyone to have the same ears as us. We train for a really long time in how to listen to music and understand its cultural significance. And when we write and when we teach, we are often trying to show other people how to experience music differently, to, to hear what we hear. But we also have to be careful at the same time not to discount or dismiss other approaches because everyone forms their own way of listening to music and hones meaningful and personal methods of engaging with sound. And that also includes very unconventional musical listeners, such as those who have experienced significant hearing loss. This is Sound Expertise, and I'm your host, Will Robin, and this is a podcast where I talk with my fellow music scholars about their research and why it matters. My guest today, Jessica A. Holmes, is a lecturer of musicology at UCLA's Herb Alpert School of Music. Professor Holmes studies the relationship between music and disability and examines how deaf people, despite assumptions that they might not be able to experience music, are instead expert listeners, having developed their own multisensory relationship to music. When we talk about music and deafness, we often focus on narratives of overcoming the classic example being Beethoven, the composer who transcends hearing loss to write great music. But members of the deaf community, which itself is a charged term, as there is no one way to be deaf and no one unified deaf culture, flip the script by talking not about hearing loss, but instead about deaf gain. And we can learn a lot, we can gain a lot, by better understanding the expertise involved in deaf listening, as we'll do so now in my conversation with Professor Jessica Holmes. I'd love to start by talking a little bit about your work in music in deaf communities. Um, and in reading it, it raises, a, I think, an important issue that, that gets to the stake of some of the questions you ask about music and deafness, which is that when you write out the word deaf, you have a lowercase d and an uppercase d, so d slash d-e-a-f, um, which I guess gets to some of the kind of interesting and important political divisions within the deaf community. Can you talk a little bit about what those divisions are and what it means for your examination of issues of music and deafness? Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful question. Thank you. So for starters, there is no singular experience of deafness and the deaf community isn't monolith or homogenous. No two people experience deafness in the same way, neither physically or socioculturally. So for starters, hearing loss, if we're thinking in medical terms, if we're thinking about it as an audiological condition, uh, it exists 
along an audiological spectrum ranging from mild to profound, the cause and type of a person's hearing loss, its configuration between left and right ears, uh, the different frequency thresholds across upper and lower registers, and also the age of onset varies from one person to the next. People can be born deaf. Uh, they could perhaps lose their hearing later in life, whether through uh, an illness or suddenly through an injury or simply through the natural process of aging or through prolonged exposure to loud sounds. So suffice it to say that there are no two, no two experiences of hearing loss as an audiological condition are exactly alike. Moreover, and this is where it gets interesting, especially in my work, the sociocultural experience of deafness is equally diverse and highly variable. Deaf people use language, deaf and hard of hearing people use language and auditory assistive technologies in vastly different ways. And often their sense of identity is tied to their linguistic preferences. So for instance, self-identifying members of deaf culture conceive of deafness as an empowering uh, cultural linguistic minority identity. And they communicate primarily in, through, in, in sign language and refrain from using their spoken voices. Often they opt not to use hearing aids or cochlear implants, though that's increasingly uh, be, being, being challenged within deaf culture. And by comparison, there are other deaf and hard of hearing people who, who really seek to conform to the norms of the hearing world, preferring to use hearing aids and cochlear implants, communicating through spoken language, supplementing auditory information through lip reading. And then there are people who <laughs> fall somewhere in between these two right. camps. So it's really impossible to generalize but what's so interesting for me from the standpoint of my work on music and deafness is that all of these many highly varied and enriching experiences of deafness result in <laughs> an equally diverse set of musical experiences. Were I to generalize though, there is no question that regardless of one's sort of linguistic or cultural preferences or allegiances, most deaf and hard of hearing people have developed an expert conception of sound because the hearing world has so often failed to accommodate their differences. And this, this expert conception of sound is multisensory beyond hearing. Right. Yeah. I want to, maybe as a way to kind of get into that, let's talk a little bit about the percussionist Evelyn Glennie, who's been the subject of some of your work and who um, has hearing loss, um, maybe or maybe does not identify as deaf, and but has this kind of mythos around her because she's this virtuosic musician, you know, very active performer who um, does not hear like uh, able folks might, might hear. So can you talk a little bit about her work and how this relates to some of those issues? Yes, absolutely. Wonderful that you bring her up because she is, next to Beethoven, one of the most widely recognized examples of a deaf musician. And often when I'm first telling people about my research, they always say, have you ask, have you heard about mm -hmm. the deaf percussionist Evelyn Glennie? So Evelyn Glennie is profoundly deaf. And again, from an audiological standpoint, that means generally she cannot hear below 90 decibels. So over time, she's developed this highly nuanced, highly differentiated 
way of listening to sounds through the body, which she calls touching the sound. So she's trained herself essentially to, to, to feel the different pitches and timbres resonating in different parts of her body. Evelyn Glennie is by no means the rule. She's very much an exception that she was born hearing and became deafened, as she says, at age 12. And her hearing loss, hearing loss when it when it when it initially sets in can be very disorienting and destabilizing as, as the hearing loss starts to stabilize. Uh, and it really started to stabilize in, into her teens. So during this, this period of, of, of loss, the initial period of loss, she, along with the help of her percussion, percussion instructor, developed this, this, this set of practices around touching the sounds. Uh, and again, Glennie, because she was born hearing, more readily identifies with the hearing world. The majority of her audiences are hearing. She communicates through spoken language. She's an expert lip reader. Now, Evelyn Glennie, and this is something that you've hinted at, well, certainly a contentious figure within the deaf community. So members of deaf culture <laughs> have a very fraught relationship to Evelyn Glennie because she does inadvertently set up certain expectations about this sort of musicality among deaf people and what it looks like. So this, this idea that, that all deaf people are equipped with a superhuman ability to perceive music through touch in the same way that Glennie does. Mm, this like a uh, is that part of this kind of super crip trope that you talk a little absolutely, bit about? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is perpetuated through the the proliferation of popular science reporting on empirical neuroscience research, right? Neuroscience occupies <laughs> a special place I think in in the popular imaginary. We're fascinated endlessly fascinated with the brain and the senses. And so a lot of recent studies into what's called cross-modal plasticity, which is actually only present in certain sort of prelingual instances of deafness, whereby the brain recruits the neurons that would be, that are unused in the, the, the auditory cortex and redistributes them across the neural network such that it results in certain heightened uh, sensory faculties elsewhere. So in pop culture, through a lot of the sensationalist reporting that gets spun into, wow, all deaf people <laughs> have this superhuman ability to uh, sense music through vibrations or have a heightened visual acuity. Mm, this is kind of like the like daredevil of like exactly. he, he's blind, but he has superpowers <laughs> everywhere else. Exactly, exactly. So that 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 phenomenon really uh, intensifies Glennie's reception and, and helps kind of solidify that mythos. But it's one that she has actively challenged, right? She makes very clear that this is my experience. <laughs> and in fact, this listening to, to music through the, the sense of touch or this sort of multi-sensory awareness of sound is something that hearing people can achieve. But her her she makes very clear that this is her experience of sound, that it is by no means uh, a sort of general rule. Right. And so what drew you to focus on Glenny as a kind of interesting figure to understand issues of deafness in music. 
Yeah, well, if I may, I, I speak in more general terms and then answer your question about sure. Lenny specifically. I first got interested in music and deafness through a familial connection, actually. So my uncle on my father's side has been profoundly deaf since birth and communicates using speech and lip reading. And it was sort of through witnessing what I think of as his expert listening, the sort of invisible intricate labors that he undertakes in his social interactions and in his musical engagements to compensate for the shortcomings of his hearing aids or a, a lack of accommodations that I became attuned to the sort of multi-sensory richness of his conception of sound and curious about deaf musical experiences more generally. So for instance, the way he maintains clear sight lines with the speaker or the musician in order to supplement auditory information with visual cues, uh, the way he perceives a meaning through subtle bodily gestures, often intuiting meaning before words are spoken or before music is played. Um, you know, the sophistication of his vibrational acuity around rhythm. So it was really this, this sort of expert listening, this listening expertise that I witnessed on the part of my uncle that, that, that got me interested in this. And then his, his, his near complete exclusion from musical spaces, actually. So... Do you Again, mean that he was not interested in attending performances? I mean, what was his relationship to music? Yeah, great question. So it wasn't for lack of interest on his part, but it was due to the sort of misconceptions surrounding deafness, this, this misconception that deafness precludes the possibility of musical engagement, that deaf people mm. have no conception of sound and by extension music, that hearing is the bare minimum requirement for musical engagement, uh, that the, the piano teachers uh, were reluctant to take him on as a student. <laughs> there was this notion that, well, like, why bother inviting or including him if he can't even begin to understand and appreciate the music? So, but, but, but that wasn't reflective of his experiences. He, he very much enjoys music as much as you and I enjoy music, but just in perhaps different terms. So I suppose in my work, I, I, I'm, I'm really trying to shed light or, or, or position this historically marginalized class of, of musicians and listeners at the center of musical accounts on the senses challenging the primacy of hearing in Western music discourse. So that's, that's how I got interested in music and deafness. And then <laughs> Glennie just sort of came naturally through the process of, of my, of my research she was one of the, the most talked about deaf musicians out there. So. So there's, yeah. I guess, kind of like a spectrum here in terms of these, of these myths. One is the deaf people wouldn't be interested in music because they can't hear. And then on the other hand, there's the Glennie of like deaf people have some kind of superhuman engagement with music that we through touch. And so you're trying to basically show that there's actually a huge spectrum in between those yeah. things that's actually reflective of um, deaf, deaf experience. Yeah, absolutely. That, 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 that deafness has been constructed as antithetical to musical experience and also in sort of as, so as a form of deficit, but as also as a form of extraordinary superhuman power. But yes, there is this kind of middle ground and it's incredibly vast and diverse. 
And so that's precisely the work of the book project is to challenge these myths, these misconceptions, these stereotypes, the stigma, and to bring attention to some of the more maybe mundane even (laughs) and unexpected uh, death experiences of music. And one of the main kind of arguments that that you're advancing and that we've been talking a little bit about is this idea of sound as multisensory. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit more about this idea of like, sound is not just about hearing? Yeah, where to begin? Uh, So I've been so fortunate in my time at UCLA to work very closely with Nina Eidsheim, one of my colleagues in the Department of Musicology here at UCLA. And her, 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 her first book, Sensing Sound, uh, Listening and Singing as Vibrational Practice, had a profound influence on me uh, and, and my work on deafness because she essentially argues that, that, that sound, as we conceive of it as being transmitted through the air to directly to the ears, um, this is <clears throat> a very limited understanding uh, when in fact it is this, this vibration that we can sense in the body, through touch. Uh, but there is a tendency, I will say, again, and this, this goes back to myths about deafness, to think about deaf musicality along the lines of vibration alone, uh, when in fact uh, vision, especially within deaf culture, is also an important part of this equation. And movement. So in deaf culture, again, in the deaf community, there is this saying, especially in American deaf culture, because this is a, this is a quote that originates in <laughs> American deaf history, that we are first, last, and for all the time, a people of the eye. So this, this visual conception of the world, this visual acuity very much informs deaf engagements with music. So in, in, my, in my theorizing about the multi-sensory contours of sound and listening and music, I think not only about vibration, but also about, about vision. I should also say as a, uh, just to kind of qualify this statement, yeah, sure. that <laughs> um, Dividing the sensorium into these discrete parts is is sort of a Western, it's a Western paradigm or framework. Um, It makes sense for me to talk about them as vision, (laughs) vibration, hearing. Um, But for many deaf people, it's very difficult to distinguish between them. (laughs) And and it's it's almost irrelevant. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not necessarily reflective of their experiences. Some of these things are really hard to uh, quantify, <laughs> right? And I think the same is true with, with Glennie. She said this before, that it's just, it's so difficult to explain. So that's certainly one of the challenges that I've come up against in the book. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting in the, you know, I read this our fantastic article you wrote for the Journal of the American Musicological Society, where, you know, there are these different examples of, of hearing as a visual experience, I guess, um, one of them being um, ASL that accompanies musical performances. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, like I, uh, I don't know, maybe it was like six months or a year. I feel like it was probably pre-corona, but I remember there was a video of assigning a, a rap, uh, a, someone uh, doing, I guess, signing for a rapper. And it like went viral because people were impressed by the virtuosity of that 
performance, but it also wasn't really a performance, right? Like it's not for us to consume as a kind of spectacle. It's for people who can't hear to understand the actual music that's, yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked about this. My colleague, Annabelle Mailer, has written at length about what you're describing, which is song signing. <laughs> the practice of signing a sign language interpretation of a pre- alongside a pre-existing or a, a song or a live performance. Uh, song signing has become increasingly visible in recent years through these different sign performances at the the live shows of different musical acts or through different televised song uh, singing competitions <laughs> like mm. Eurovision. Oh right, right, right. And so there's two. It's it's there's two different types of song signing. You could say there's song signing performed by certified interpreters whose job it is to kind of. Uh, augment or supplement the musical performance in question for hard of hearing, deaf and hard of hearing listeners. And then there's a genre of, of, of song signing online performed by both hearing and native deaf signers. And there has been a tendency to fetishize these signed performances that we see at some of these live shows that circulate, like they, they have, they have, they become, they circulate uh, online. They have an almost viral traction. People will share these YouTube videos on Twitter and all these retweets. And there's this tendency to think about sign language as a form of like beautiful choreography. <laughs> Watches this, witness this, this signer embody the music through gesture. Um, but members of deaf culture really resent that kind of attention and fetishization because this is a, a, a language and it's a service that this, this, the signer is providing. Uh, and uh, first and foremost, so the, the tendency to think about it in these sort of sensationalized terms uh, is, it, it sort of undermines the linguistic integrity of, of the performance. From, from the standpoint of, of, of deaf culture. Uh, I will say though that, that for those listeners interested in learning more about uh, song signing, I would definitely recommend reading some of Annabelle Mailer's work. She actually talks about the difference between hearing and culturally deaf song signers, whereas hearing song signers might strive to provide a direct translation of the music communicating things like register th through hand height, um, rhythm through body pulsing, perhaps not signing between instrumental breaks so as to delineate between verse and chorus. So there's this in among hearing signers, uh, the intention to provide a sort of direct translation of the music to deaf listeners among native deaf signers. Uh, the, the, the song signing becomes its own form of musical expression at the hands of an expert signer. Yeah, the, the, the things like the formal parameters of the music, it's less about providing a, a direct translation of these different formal parameters of the music than it is about providing a supplemental form of visual, spatial, poetic expression. One of the... I mean, it's clear that there are all of these significant divisions within a deaf community or deaf communities um, that relate to music. And 
you know, you, you talked a little bit about this idea of the visual as, as primal um, in deaf culture. There's also a kind of skepticism that can emerge or a kind of complicated relationship towards music. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of ambivalence towards music in deaf culture? Yeah, that, that, that's important because in deaf culture, this sort of contemporary maxim, we are first, last, and for all the time, a people of the eye. Uh, there's, there's this sort of defining oneself in opposition to the hearing world and to different hearing norms. And this goes back to uh, the history of the American deaf community and the, the enforced assimilation, actually, that, 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 that went on. There was the sense in which sign language use was for, for in, among oralists for, forbidden and violently suppressed. So this sort, sort of subaltern deaf community of signers emerged. I'm, I'm simplifying the history here and really resisted this kind of assimilation into the hearing world. And among members of contemporary deaf culture, this idea that they are primarily visual community is significant uh, in that it is, they construct this identity in opposition to the, the hearing world and to the ear. So we are a people of the eye means that music, being that music is sort of the pinnacle of hearing experience or has been thought of that way, right? That, 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 that there's this resistance on the part of certain members of contemporary deaf culture to, to music on account of that because it is seen as belonging to the hearing world. And this is actually something that one of my interlocutors, Christine Sun Kim, has contended with in her in her work. Um, she is acutely aware of the fact that members of contemporary deaf culture may be apprehensive about engaging with music for these reasons. So her she presents in her work a primarily visual conception of music. She's a composer, an experimental composer. Yeah, she is an experimental composer and she has this sort of expanding repertoire of visual music. So these handwritten epigrams accompanied by a repetition of a singular musical cue, whether that be piano, forte, rests, bar lines, and other symbols drawn from Western musical notation. Uh, and her approach centers on what she calls unlearning sound etiquette. So this, this, this set of naturalized behavioral codes uh, that dictate when and when not to make sound, this kind of invisible social contract that she internalized from a young age as a uh, born profoundly deaf that divides sharply along the lines of hearing and deafness. So in her work, she she really tries to sort of discard this, this repressive social conditioning and freely explore the physicality of sound primarily through vision and visual cues stemming from sign language. Yeah. How do you kind of navigate, you know, and this is a familiar problem for especially folks who do ethnomusicological work, talking about the deaf community while not being part of the deaf community. And how do you kind of find a, a place to address these issues while also understanding that you are the, you are not the subject of your own research? A very important question. Uh, it, this 
I'm, I'm reluctant to use the word ally because it is so politically charged sure, yeah. and fraught. Uh, I am an outsider to deaf culture. My, I, I, I think of myself as having from a young age kind of internalized a certain understanding and appreciation uh, of, of, of deafness vis-a-vis my uncle. But of course, he was not a member of deaf culture. So when I first got started, I was an outsider to deaf culture. I couldn't sign and I had a very limited understanding of sign language. And understandably, there is an initial sort of apprehensiveness on the part of interlocutors who self-identify with deaf culture because of the degree to which deafness has been stigmatized historically um, and this failure on the part of many to really take the time to learn about some of their cultural values. So I certainly had, when I first started to educate myself, I read, I read as much as I could in the deaf studies literature about deaf gain so that I was able to find some kind of common ground. When I, when I engage with members of deaf culture, I, I'm, I'm there to, to learn. I'm not there to dictate. Um, while I may have a research agenda, nine times out of 10, you know, at the end of an interview, uh, my perspective has been challenged in new and unexpected ways. So I approach it with, with, with these kinds of engagements and in interactions with, uh, with a desire to, to learn and an openness uh, while being fully cognizant of my white, able-bodied hearing privilege in this case. And more than that, like you, I am a musician who is trained in the Western conservatory tradition and a musicologist, right? So again, there's a sense in which musicology and the way in which we think about listening expertise, (laughs) this is sort of antithetical to a lot of, or very perhaps intimidating to members of the deaf community. So I have to be very mindful of these different, these different points of, of privilege and, and to really approach all of these interactions with a, with a sort of openness and, mm. and a desire to learn. <laughs> Do you share your work like with your interlocutors? Have you had that kind of back and forth relationship? Yeah, absolutely. Especially with Christine Sunkim, I've had to approach her on different occasions when writing different things for clarification um, in, in, in my framing of certain ideas I remember I was writing a piece recently and the editor was adamant that there be some kind of recording attached. And I said, well, that kind of defeats the purpose of her work. Right. Uh, And being that she is profoundly deaf and doesn't engage with music through this format, I don't, I think I would be doing her work a disservice. And I thought, well, I'm going to just be earnest with Christine and, 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 and tell her about this interaction 
And she affirmed my, my, my own feelings and, and shared that, yes, this would be my preference. I, 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 while I, you know, I have worked, I have limited experience working with sound recordings. There are certain sound recordings up on her website. It would be my preference to not include a recording precisely for the, you know, the reasons that you've, you've listed. So there is this kind of back and forth and a desire to get it right, to find common ground. And I, I really, I don't take that for granted. It's very humbling to have that kind of a relationship with your interlocutors. Recently, I've started writing about Monica Germino, the Dutch American experimental violinist um, and her hyperacusis and her hearing loss as a result of uh, prolonged exposure to loud volumes through violin playing. And again, we're, we're, we're engaged in this kind of ongoing correspondence. And I, and, and this takes many, many months and years to establish this kind of trust. Uh, and so again, it's very humbling and I don't take it for granted, but yes. So there's this back and forth to answer your question. Uh, there's certainly this kind of back and forth dialogue. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. You write in the uh, jams piece, um, and I really like the sentence, musicology stands to gain from deafness, which I guess I just realized now reading it, it's also a riff on this idea of deaf gain versus hearing loss, right? I, I assume that was intentional. Um, yeah. what, what does musicology stand to gain from deafness? Like what is the discipline gained by, by understanding your work and, and this broader topic? Yeah, <laughs> big, big question. question. <laughs> I, uh, I'll try to answer it succinctly. Oh, no, uh, actually, you don't have to be succinct at all. Actually, <laughs> You've got time. Oh God, I'm still trying to answer that question. Well, your I book should, will hopefully answer. I hope. Yeah, I hope. So, what is known in deaf culture as deaf gain is a sort of rhetorical inverse of the pathologizing term hearing loss and a reconfiguration of deafness as a source of physiological, social, and creative gain. (laughs) So when I say musicology stands to gain from deafness, what I mean is that we, we, we stand to learn from these, from these people. Uh, We, we, deafness offers an alternative starting point, uh, an alternative entry point beyond these sort of straightforward singular sensory paradigms, namely hearing and vibration to a lesser extent, uh, and really sort of draws our attention to the full spectrum of musical experiences. And, And some of those experiences exist beyond the sonorous. Well, thank you so much. This was really fantastic. And I learned a lot. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Will. It's, it's really an honor. And I so appreciate your taking the time to read my work. I'm very grateful to Jessica A. Holmes for that fascinating conversation. Professor Holmes is currently a lecturer in the Department of Musicology at the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music, and will be starting a new position this June as Assistant Professor of Musicology in the Department of Arts and Cultural Studies at the University of Copenhagen. You can check out links to her writing over on our website, soundexpertise.org, and you can follow me on Twitter at SeatedOvation. As always, please check out the music of our amazing producer, D. Edward Davis, on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. 
I try not to play favorites, but next week we have what I think is actually my favorite episode of Sound Expertise ever. A conversation about the role of Black women musicians singing for freedom at the 1963 March on Washington with Professor Tammy Kernodal. See you then. <laughs>